Today is July 28th, and I'm Anthony Hansen. Earlier this morning, we recorded our 14th episode of Strategic Farming Field Notes. This is a weekly program that addresses current crop production topics, and a live webinar is held at 7.30 a.m. each week on Wednesdays, where participants can ask questions for the panelists. An audio recording of the webinar is also released as a podcast the same day. Today's session was moderated by U of M Extension Crops educators David Nikolai and Jared Goblin. Panelists featured were Dr. Craig Schaefer, University of Minnesota Forage Agronomist, Nathan Druitz, Extension Educator in Stearns, Benton, and Morrison Counties, and Troy Salzer, Extension Educator in St. Louis County. The drought conditions in Minnesota and the Upper Midwest have continued to worsen. Crops are drying up, which has many concerned about the tightening forage supplies. Today's episode discussed forage establishment, early corn silage harvests, utilizing alternative crops as forages, utilizing CRP hay, as well as how drought conditions affect forage and yield quality. Remember to tune in weekly for more crop and pest management topics as we move into August. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to this morning's Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Dave, we have a number of guests here today to talk about some forage-related concerns, obviously with the drought conditions going in. Um, So I guess I'll leave it to you to introduce some of our speakers. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jared. Uh, We called an audible today, our other co-host, trying to uh, get ahead of a thundershower that's coming through southeastern Minnesota at present, uh, Ryan Miller and Radiness Plots. So um, anyhow, uh, we are going to introduce our uh, panelists and guests today. Uh, I really am honored to introduce uh, Dr. Craig Schaefer. Uh, Craig is a longtime uh, University of Minnesota faculty member in the Department of Agronomy and uh, Crop Science, and his background has been in research and education in the areas of uh, forages, alfalfa, uh, etc. So, and also uh, a longtime teacher in terms of undergraduate programming at the University of Minnesota. Also with us are uh, two local extension uh, area um, educators in agriculture, uh, Troy Salzer, who is based up in uh, northern Minnesota and in St. Louis County and all things Point North, and uh, joined his cup of coffee there with us from his, uh, from his house, I believe, up in Carleton County. And then also Nathan Druitz, uh, who was also enjoying his coffee from the Stearns, Benton, and Morrison County area as a local extension educator in agriculture, but both engaged quite a bit in livestock and in uh, forages in those particular areas. Uh, so with that, we'll, we'll start off the program. And Jared, do you want to throw the uh, first toss-up question here, uh, given things are are happening? I know we're, we're getting rain here a few places. I know right outside my house, the street lights are actually coming on here with the thunder shower, but that doesn't mean the drought is over by any uh, shape of the imagination. And certainly we're gonna have to uh, really realize that and continue with that as we go in through the month of August. Yeah, Dave, I was thinking actually, we maybe should go over what this phenomenon is called. We were talking about that beforehand. Most of our listeners probably have forgotten what rain looks like. Um, so I guess before we start, uh, Troy, I know you guys have gotten some showers there up uh, south of the Duluth area and up into St. Louis County. Uh, how much have, have your folks gotten up in that neck of the woods? So over the last week, uh, that has kind of ranged anywhere from about two inches, two and a quarter inches total, um, all the way down to uh, about two tenths of an inch. It's uh, been extremely spotty. Uh, And especially uh, with the lake effect uh, sort of things, the coolness and temperature often will uh, split storms and either send them north or south. And that's really what happened this last time. Uh, uh, a very uh, dramatic uh, storm came through and 
in areas uh, inch and a half of water uh, and uh, had a track and uh, um, was really going to hit an area that needed a lot of moisture. And then it split north and, and kind of ended up that way. And Nathan, it looks like you guys might be getting rain this morning. Is that is that true? I know your area has been very dry. I know even reports of guys chopping corn for silage already, but uh, what's things looking looking like this morning? We are actually getting rain a little bit. I had a tenth of an inch of rain in the gate rain gauge this morning, and we did actually get lucky. We hit that some of that on Friday. I know some areas got up to two inches of rain. We didn't get quite so lucky. Lucky we got about seven tenths, but you know, right now any anytime I'll, I'll I'll take anything any amount of rain at any point in time at this point so and Craig was saying earlier we can thank him because he was planning to harvest alfalfa today so uh our thanks go to you Craig yeah um yeah <laughs> you're certainly welcome um actually though um the this drought this long-term um, deficit of water is from talking with the climatologist I heard this is going to continue in the fall of course, we don't have good forecasting, you know, that far in advance. It's all modeling. And in many ways, these spotty showers just cause me to distress me out because, you know, we just wrote this article, Jared, about fall seeding, summer seeding. And okay, so you get a half an inch of rain. Are you going to, is that going to be enough to seed? And then I'm thinking, well, yeah, what if it's dry for 30 days after that? the seed's going to germinate like it did this spring. So I would rather have just returned to normal or continuation of the drought in terms of having to deal with the seeding situation. Uh, it's just very, uh, it's unpredictable and very stressful. With that said, those of you listening, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence that summer seedings are going to work for cover crops or all our forages. I just don't know because of this drought. And I don't know if any of the other panelists wanna weigh in on this, how much risk do you take to put out a whole bunch of new seed knowing the inconsistency of things. And one point that the climatologist made to me uh, is when I talked with them and that's people A and uh, uh, Kenny Bloomfeld was that, um, you know, we're deficit. We have a deficit in the Twin Cities, like five inches since June. And I don't know where you are, different parts of the country. So we can add surface mo moisture, but that can be gone in a week if it's not too much. So that's my, that's why this whole situation is stressful for everybody. <clears throat> and um, in many ways, growers have to make a risk assessment on their own farm. Yeah. You were talking before about seeding the alfalfa. You want to just mention a little bit about the other years ago, the, we used to say things about August 15th, if, if you had adequate moisture and, and what are the cutoff dates for that? Does that still hold? And I mean, and also we got subsoil moisture, but we certainly don't have any topsoil moisture. Yeah, and that was my point, Dave. I don't know the answer to that. If I had sandy ground with low water holding capacity, I'd be very concerned about seeding in August until we started getting rain. And in terms of the deadline, you know, with some of the, what I've seen in these changes in the fall freezing dates, normally you want six to eight weeks for that seedling to develop before you have the, a real killing frost, um, which would be in the mid 20s. Uh, I think we can go into early September. So if things turn around, in other words, if you're in an area where you're getting more frequent rainfall and you're getting some recharge, um, then I'd say go for it. Otherwise, 
as I've seen with the spring seedings, put them in the ground, the seed can come up, they dried off. So we don't want that. So it's gonna be very dependent on the local rainfall patterns, I think, and the soil type. Yeah, certainly uh, <clears throat> these dry conditions bring up, you know, this whole question of planting something now, you know, this discussion of people chopping corn for silage already, which I think is one of the things we should talk a little bit about, uh, especially as new rainfall has maybe re been received in some of these areas that we're already starting to think about chopping for silage. But you know, the whole the whole idea here is to generate some additional forage um, late summer, because obviously forage supplies are short. People are evaluating their their animal inventories, you know, deciding whether or not they should keep livestock or, or sell them. Uh, if they have enough forage around or not. Um, so I think, you know, I think we'll talk a little bit about corn silage. Uh, Nathan, I know you're, you and your intern have been working together to put together an article about uh, chopping drought stress corn for silage. And of course, nitrates are always a big concern. Um, you know, what are some of the other issues we should be keeping in mind and, and how does this rainfall maybe affect that? I think you were out and took some samples already. Obviously the rainfall is going to sort of regenerate some, some growth and, and give some more life to that corn. So you wanna, wanna talk a little bit about that and what you're putting together? The, the biggest thing here is remember that even though our fields may look a lot drier, you know, they're, they're starting to crisp up in places, we're seeing some flaring up all the way up, uh, in some instances all the way up to that ear, that, that leaf that's ha that has the corn ear on it is starting to flare up that oftentimes the moisture level is still higher in that than we realize. And so that was actually my intern and I, we were out looking at that particular phenomenon, trying to see, okay, is that where we're at at this point? And that is exactly where we're at. Uh, we took some samples north of Albany in a field. We had three different levels of corn uh, drought stress on some sugar sand. And we, I sampled all three of them. They're all three above, uh, well above 74% moisture yet. And that is, great, great at this point for us. I have another agronomist, uh, Central Soda out of Little Falls. He he collected some samples in that direction. He's looking at 82% moisture. And again, we're looking at different heights of corn and he chopped them all together and dried them down. And so we're still well above where we need, where we should be looking to chop this stuff. The big thing here is, you know, with, we're going to see reduced yields. We want to make sure that we're reducing our margin of error and so make sure that you're chopping this at the proper moisture that we're out there. We're monitoring the current moisture situation. You know, we were, we weren't supposed to get this rain with the, with the heat today. And so with that rain, I think we're going to be able to keep delaying that out. Now I do know we've had some guys in central Morrison County already chopping. I, uh, you know, it, there are some pockets where it's going to be where it's drier than others, but you know, keep that in mind that you need to be checking your, 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 crop moisture before you start chopping to make sure that you get that pro you know, stored properly in, in your bins. Uh, yeah. Nitrates, of course, are are the other concern here at this point. With this recent rainfall, some places, again, you know, if you're getting two, three inches, the concern there is that nitrates come into that bottom third of that plant. And so if you're chopping that off, you're going to be taking a lot of those nitrates. Uh, I've been reading up on that. It looks like about two weeks. If we get more significant rainfall, some of those areas today, this morning that had the red cells that went through, where we're probably going to see, you know, half inch or more combined with what we got over the weekend. We're probably going to want to wait some of those fields out a little bit here, even if they're on, or, you know, even if they're a little drier, just to let some of those nitrates come down. Otherwise, you know, be aware that you're going to need, you know, when you ensile this, you are going to lose about 30, between about a third and a half of that nitrate. And then you're going to want to test it before you start feeding it. So, so maybe for Nathan and Craig, both, um, let's put some context to the numbers in comparison. 
in a normal year, what kind of moisture would we desire for corn silage to be adequate in terms of ensiling, whether it's bunker or, or upright? So what's, what's the goal if you had moisture in, in comparison to where you are now? And then what's the level of nitrates where we really need to be concerned if people do sample and uh, or have livestock? So maybe talk a little bit about what the comparisons are. Craig, I don't know. do you want to you want to take this yeah, first, or you, 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 Nathan or Craig, or, and so like, what are those comparisons? I'll let Nathan handle it about the moisture content, but Nathan, why don't you go? What you said you were looking at the 70s uh, whole plant moisture of 70 and 80. What should it be on a whole plant basis for optimum and silage? So it's, for, yeah, uh, it depends on so, what you're putting it in, I guess. You know, in that case, a bunker you can have a little higher moisture. Uh, I've seen some guys they'll put it in at 68 to 70 percent that's on the higher side but they have been successful you know and, and we're looking at a four-week period here if you're doing something like an upright silo typically you want to be in that 65 60 65 percent moistures from from what i'm you know from my experience and that seems to work pretty well that's just kind of a general rule of thumb around here is it that i'm hearing Nathan, and part of the issue in relationship to going much higher than that, either in the bunker or in the upright silo, is with that pressure uh, and uh, over time you will see loss of uh, moisture and with that moisture you lose nutrients. And so uh, that is kind of the key in relationship to this. Uh, realize that if you let that opportunity buy you and you get below that 70% uh, moisture for a bunker or uh, 65, even even down to 55, um, yes, you want to start before that, uh, putting it into, into a bag. Um, but as you're doing that, it's really critical to uh, get that started so that you can achieve um, completion of that uh, chopping process. But on the other hand, you don't want to start too soon because you will lose that uh, nu nutrient that is uh, leaving in that moisture. And it won't ferment as well if uh, the moisture is uh, too high uh, and won't store as well in that particular case. Hey, Troy, we talked a little bit before, you know, with some of this corn probably not even having ears on it uh, and being drought stressed. You said that uh, it has been a practice in your neck of the woods where folks have cut it with a haybine and and actually made baleage out of it. I know I've talked to Kevin Shinners in Wisconsin about this practice before, and it sounds like it can work fairly effectively. Um, is that is that your experience? Uh, that works quite well. Um, even some of this late planted corn, oftentimes uh, uh, folks think that once you get past that 15th of June, it doesn't pay to plant corn. I had people planting corn last week. Uh, yeah, they're going to graze it, but yet it produces very good um, um, forage, uh, even without an ear on it, um, high quality, uh, lots of yield. There are tremendous amount of uh, effort has gone into the breeding program, so the drought tolerance. And also I think about the size of that seed. Uh, once that seed gets up and growing, there's a lot more nutrient in that seed to get that plant to grow versus uh, oats or uh, alfalfa plants. So I think it's critical to think about that seed. Um, and as folks utilize um, a disc bind or uh, some cutting apparatus, um, one of the key functions that I've seen in our area to be successful baling it and creating baleage out of it is uh, utilizing a crop cutter or some sort of uh, baler processor um, to reduce the amount of air in that 
and actually get uh, a tighter pack bale. The other thing I've seen is that there's been a little bit more mold between bales on an inline um, wrapping system versus an individual wrap system. So uh, feed out would have to be uh, expedited if it's uh, going to be uh, put into a line wrapped uh, baler. The other thing, net wrap is essential uh, to protect that plastic and multiple or extra layers in the tune of about seven to eight layers of plastic as compared to your typical six layers with normal bale wrap. So I was gonna ask uh, Craig to put on his teaching hat here um, and so if the students in the class will ask you, Craig, well, why do we get nitrates at this time of the year? Why would they even accumulate in, in corn silage? And, and then you sometimes in class, you talk about prussic acid. Well, what, what's that all about? So do you want to you wanna give us a primer and take us back to school a little bit about what's going on here in the plant? Thanks, Dave, uh, yeah, for that great lead in there. No, um, I was going to say, um, the follow up on what Troy and Nathan were just talking. Um, and what I just said earlier, you know, these are kind of, we're in uncharted waters, so to speak. Everybody needs to know that to predict forage quality, whether it be nutritive value like crude protein or digestibility, we're really going to have to have some testing of the forages this year. And um, as Dave just mentioned, likewise for nitrates. And we know nitrates accumulate in the stocks of plants, in fact, at the bottom third of the stock. So if you can cut a little higher, you could leave some nitrate behind. But in any case, we can test all forages for nitrate as well. So we know what the uh, levels are. Now, Dave actually, so we'd all be educated about this. Dave forwarded us an excellent publication from North Dakota State University. And Jared, maybe you can put that link online. It caused nit nitrate poisoning in livestock. And uh, I would urge those of you who have questions about this to read this. And you'll, what the, uh, Dave, I know you want me to tell you this specific nitrate level where you can kill a cow. And I'm not gonna do that. Because um, it, says it says in here, in reality, most of the time, uh, this feed we're talking about will not be the the, the sole component of the ration. So, um, and it is very wise under these times with the moisture stress, with nitrate accumulation occurring, that um, you acclimate the animals, particularly ruminants, sheep are very susceptible to it, cattle as well, to, to feed with higher levels of nitrate. So don't start off with a, a full feed of uh, lamb's quarters or corn stalks that uh, are full of nitrate, uh, you're gonna have trouble. So blend it in slowly. And in many times you'll never be able to go full feed with a mixed ration, this ought to be feasible. Now, how this happens, plants take up nitrate naturally. There's an active process, they accumulate it. Nitrate is very essential for all, all plant growth uh, because plants make protein enzymes out of it. But during these times, the nitrate that is accumulated, simulated by the plant from the soil, accumulates in the stocks and it is not converted to protein. So it builds up there. And uh, we just wrote something about weeds. There's weeds like lamb's quarters and pigweed that do a lot of accumulation of nitrate. And uh, the uh, nitrate is, is there, it's not broken down in the plant 
Um, and then when that feed is harvested or that forage is harvested, depending on how it is fed or processed, uh, there can be issues. How this happens within the uh, animal is this, uh, just generally speaking, uh, maybe many of you have heard of blue baby disease or problems with humans consuming water high in nitrates. It can be a problem with livestock too because the nitrate is con converted to nitrite, which binds with the hemoglobin. The hemoglobin in our blood, in livestock blood, carries the oxygen. So what we have is a, a um, starvation of cells for oxygen. And symptoms of this in um, humans, also livestock, are the blue blueness around the uh, lips, and there's a whole host of other things as well. Uh, you mentioned prussic acid poisoning, um, Dave, and that that is more can be a problem in certain plants. I've not had it with corn, but more with the sorghum Sudan grasses and the sorghums. Um, and it can be a problem under drought, but also under frost conditions at, at the, uh, uh, as well. Prussic acid is uh, basically cyanide. It's a cyanogenic glycoside. Used to use cyanide in the gas chambers. And what it does, um, you know, back when they had the capital punishment thing, but what it does to livestock uh, is um, uh, it actually goes to the cell and, and, and to parts of the cell and is toxic. So you have two different mechanisms. And in any case, you have asphyxia occurring at the cellular level from those two compounds. So, you know, what, you know, what this says for all of us is that we are managers. We've got to be aware of what we're feeding and what we're growing and feeding. Um, and we, we're very careful about that. I think a lot of us with our diets um, our own diets, but then with livestock, we've got these stressful conditions. We're going to have to do some things differently and maybe have more intensive management. Again, I refer to that publication. If you want to look at the acute levels, and there's all kind of levels listed here, depending on the level of feeding that you want to have. So, Dave, I hope that that in the yeah, audience we can cite. Jared? Uh, yeah, we uh, we got probably about 10 minutes left here, and we've got a number of questions to get to. So I see uh, Gerald does have his hand raised. we got two questions ahead of you, and then we'll try to get to you. Uh, we can unmute you here in a bit. But uh, there's one question here in regards to, you know, what can I plant now to get emergency forage? You know, Craig, we've had some conversations about this. Um, really goes back to your conversations with the climatologists on, you know, okay, what's the likelihood of us having enough rainfall to get things going? Um, you know, we might get some of these pop-up showers, kind of like what we're getting this morning. Uh, but in some of these cases where folks are desperate for forage, you know, they evaluate some of that risk and they really need forage. So spending, you know, 30, 40 bucks on some seed is, is worth that, uh, you know, the ability to potentially have more forage. So, and I've been thinking about this as well, you know, after corn silage harvest, or maybe after small grain harvest, you know, what can we plant or should we plant as a cover crop if we need additional forage? Now, in my mind, I was just yesterday looking at some uh, water use uh, sort of tables. Um, you know, the drought tolerant, you know, millets and sorghums, you know, can get by with less less water. I'm also curious, um, you know, Troy, I know you've had a lot of experience with some of these crops in your neck of the woods. Have you ever, do you have any experience or thoughts on planting certain ones in drought conditions? You know, do some get going better than others? So, Jared, from my perspective, uh, I think that you've really um, uh, kind of hit the nail on the head uh, in relationship to looking at things like millet. Um, specifically, 
Uh, I also encourage my uh, folks, uh, especially ones that are utilizing a lot of annuals in their rotation, uh, producing high quality forage. Uh, they don't have chopping equipment. And so with that in mind, uh, some of them are constantly planting stuff. Um, uh, just uh, today, um, uh, one of the fellas is planting uh, with the intention of planting things like teff grass, uh, millet. Uh, he's just recently finished planting a bunch of forage, corn, uh, and very shortly he'll be switching back to oats uh, and uh, just continuing to uh, do that. I know that fall seeded oats seems strange for many folks, but if you think about it, the goal of oats is to produce seed, and especially as we go into shorter day length, um, we actually see uh, really good growth late into the fall because of its uh, uh, liking of cold temperatures. And so even if it doesn't germinate right away, it still gets an opportunity to go. Mixing some brassicas in that really does help to, uh, um, uh, especially for grazing situations, uh, uh, also uh, a cold tolerant plant that will continue to grow. But with as dry as it is in many areas, there's still plenty of season left to look at mill millets and sorghum sedan grass specifically. Yeah, we're kind of probably getting close to that tipping point in some areas where we might want to think about the cool seasons here in the next week or so. Uh, southern part of the state, maybe, you know, sticking with those, those warmer season grasses for another week or so. Um, another good question here from uh, Dr. Debbie Samick. Uh, Craig, I think this one will maybe go to you in relationship to that article that you had put together on alfalfa and how it responds uh, in terms of dormancy and those types of things in a drought. Uh, so the question is, are younger or older st alfalfa stands more susceptible to drought conditions? We have seen stunted one-year-old stands that can't be attributed to disease. So um, Craig, you want to talk a little bit about what's going on in those alfalfa plants uh, during a drought and, and whether or not there's differences there in, in, in new or older stands? So I am, uh, it, it, it's a long question. Uh, and it, as Dave said from teaching, I try to talk too much. Um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, so uh, I, I, I think all our perennial alfalfa plants are, that are out there in the field are in, in good shape. Uh, during this drought and dry down, the plants send a lot of energy below ground and they're in a dormant state. And this is the nature of a perennial. So when we get a return of moisture, maybe this fall, I think all our plants come back. Now, the, specifically the question about the seedlings, until seedlings undergo contractile growth at eight to 10 weeks, there's going to be issues, maybe six to eight weeks, about whether they have a good crown on them. So. I've seen alfalfa stands that have been lost this spring because they came up, they germinated, they might have even had a trifoliolate leaf, but they did not have enough root system. So I'd like to see some contractile growth occurring. And if, it, if the seedling made it through two months, then it shouldn't be, have any problem um, making it. It, it, it. it has perennated. So it will come back. Um, that's what I think. And I think that the other people, uh, Nathan, that you've seen alfalfa, I think you ought to weigh in this too. So. I mean, I guess from, from my perspective, I think it's, it's exactly as you mentioned, Craig, you know, it depends on how far along that plant got in some of these cases, in some of these areas where we have had a little bit of rain and things have kind of limped along, I think we're going to be 
we're going to be fine. Uh, some guys have had some opportunities to get some water guns into some smaller fields. And so we've had some rain go on or, you know, rain go on through irrigation that way. And I think most of those fields are going to be fine. The, the biggest concerns here are going to be those, those dry land acres where we've got high degree of sand and we haven't had that moisture and you get out there and those plants got maybe an inch tall and then they just dried up and died. And, and those, in those particular fields, you know, I think we're going to be looking at, you know, possibly, possibly needing to come back in with something here yet this fall and and trying to do something you know in in the spring um jared i put the in the chat box that link that craig had asked about for that ndsu publication with the actual numbers for nitrates and livestock but uh do you want to uh talk about anything else here we're getting closer on our our time i know that there's a number of crop news articles that you either authored or assigned people to or tried to um for personal experience, uh, what are what are some of those things that are coming out that people can reference to uh, in, in in regards to forages and dry conditions? Yeah, so unfortunately, we are getting close to our time here today. But um, those of you who are not subscribed to the Minnesota Crop News blog, um, we can put the link in the chat. But uh, certainly encourage you to do so. We'll have a number of new articles that'll be coming out here, uh, like we mentioned or alluded to. Nathan's working on one regarding chopping drought stress corn for silage. Um, some concerns about blister beetles, which um, have a toxic substance in them and can cause some significant issues. Um, they have become more problematic and more prevalent in northern Minnesota and Troy's area, as well as in the northwest. There'll be an article regarding that. Um, you know, we have one on feeding weeds. Maybe that's the only thing growing in your fields. Um, and if you need forage, you know, weeds can provide good forage, but certainly have some issues associated with some of them. Um, more on the alternative forages, cover crops, you know, sort of recommendations in terms of what to plant in these drier conditions. Um, haying and grazing CRP, of course, that'll be opened up here um, uh, following the primary nesting season. Um, a lot of acres will be harvested for that. Um, and then also on storage, um, you know, obviously forage supplies are very tight right now. So we want to make sure we do a good job of preserving that silage, preserving that baleage and hay um, you know, trying to, to preserve what we do have and not letting it rot away in the pile um, when forage supplies are going to be really tight. So um, I think before we before we head out today, um, and again, the Minnesota Crop News blog sign up is in the chat there for those of you who are not um, signed up. Gerald, um, I'm not sure if your hand is raised. I think you are unmuted. Um, but if you do have the opportunity now here, if you'd like to click unmute and, and ask your question live, you're you're more than welcome to do so. If uh, that doesn't come through, I'm wondering if we could just do a quick uh, of our panelists and any last parting words or summarizing uh, thoughts that people should keep in mind here, uh, the balance of the July and into August in regards to some of the things we talked about, kind of a summation. So maybe we'll just uh, go, around the, uh, go around the panel here, uh, Craig. All of this drought stress this year kind of takes me back in my career uh, to when this has happened before. And I just wish I would have taken better notes. And I would and be more, been a little more conservative. I think all of us, as we go through life, we tend to forget these times like this. And it may, may happen again. It will happen again. So take notes and remember what works and do, don't, doesn't work. Because there's many questions that are unanswered. Troy, can you? Uh... Give us some good words here in uh, uh, 20 words or less. Uh, I really think that uh, Dr. Schaefer earlier uh, uh, made mention of a really important detail. With drought comes lots of different challenges. Uh, but as, uh, 
as farmers, as livestock operators, um, part of the uh, skill that you have is to manage your way through it. And that's whether it's dealing with prussic acid, dealing with uh, nitrates. Uh, the key is for you to uh, take into consideration what options you've got and then go ahead and uh, manage your way through it. Nathan, you get the last word. Yeah, I, I've been saying this a lot. It's been a weird year. I've I've got an agronomist who sent me pictures and reports on corn rootworms in alfalfa. And alfalfa stands at the level of 20 to 35 uh, per uh, per sweep. So significant rootworm pressure on alfalfa for some reason. But, you know, the big thing here is we did get a chance to get our herbicides out be aware of herbicide restrictions. If you're taking some of this stuff for forage, if you're looking to plant back into some of these emergency forages, you know, we do have some moisture in some locations down there. So if you're lucky enough to have some and, and you get some of that out there, make sure you're following those restrictions. And then of course, uh, the safety piece with the high, higher nitrates, when you put that in a silo or a bunker, you can run into some issues with some gases. Just make sure that you're paying attention to the safety component and, and don't end up on the wrong side of, of some really horrible gases. And with that, everybody, I guess I'd like to thank our panelists for joining us today, Dr. Craig Schaefer, Troy Salzer, and Nathan Druitz. Uh, the contact info is in the chat if you'd like to reach out to any of them or any of us uh, specifically for additional questions. We're always more than happy to help work with you on questions. Um, again, these, these sessions are recorded and are available via your favorite podcasting platform. So if you just search there or visit the, uh, the crops page, you should be able to find that information. Uh, we will be joining again next week. So if you'd like to join back next week on Wednesday morning, we'll have another program, uh, Strategic Farming Field Notes, um, to discuss more pertinent topics as they arise this next week. So with, with that, uh, thank you for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day.